the text for this morning's sermon, 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. The last chapter of 1 John, the last four verses. We know that anyone born of God does not sin, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding to know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Father, as we undertake now to expose some of the devices and designs of your arch enemy, Satan, I ask for protection for ourselves in this room. I ask for a cleansing of this place and a purifying of the space in which we now gather. In the name of Jesus. We lift the banner of Christ crucified above our heads and wave it in the face of all the forces of evil and declare our victory that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So I pray now, Lord, that you would frustrate the designs of Satan to hinder the ministry of the word. I pray that the bird soaring over this service, as it were, ready to pluck the seed and take it away when it lands in a heart, would be shot down right now by the prayers of your people. And I pray that there would be fertile soil and that the seed would sink deep, that it would be watered by the Spirit, that it would grow up and bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold for your glory, for the joy of this people. In the name of the mighty Jesus, I pray. Amen. Three years ago, Charles Colson published this book. I hope many of you have read it. If you haven't, I hope you will. It's a good book. I regard Charles Colson as a prophet in our day, full of truth and power and things that we need to hear. Kingdoms in Conflict. I lift it up because I could have named this series of messages that, Kingdoms in Conflict, But there's a slight difference. As you read this book, it's a um, discussion of the conflict between the kingdom of God and what he calls the kingdoms of man. All kinds of kingdoms of man. I want to go behind the kingdoms of man in this series to the kingdom of Satan. And talk about the conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Now the question arises, is that a biblical term even? Is that a proper way to think? kingdom of Satan. Matthew 12, 26, Jesus said, If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Yes, there is a kingdom of Satan. Jesus said so. There is a kingdom called the kingdom of Satan. Two verses later, Jesus says, But if It is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so there's conflict. The kingdom of God confronting 
the kingdom of Satan. And what we're going to see more and more clearly as we move through the series is that when Jesus Christ came, the king entered into this uh, alien territory, as it were, the evil age. His coming, his dying, his rising was the decisive blow against the kingdom of Satan. And what we want to do over the weeks is learn the nature of that blow. Uh, what abiding effects of victory are there in his people today? How to appropriate that kingdom victory and power and to what extent we can expect it to make an impact on this fallen world order. Those are the kinds of things we want to address. Now, Colson begins his book with a section called uh, Why We Need the Kingdom. And that's exactly where I want to start. See, the subtitle in the bulletin is uh, What We're Up Against. What is the need for power? What is the need for understanding the uh, nature of the counterforce called the kingdom of God in the world. What are we up against? Is it a dangerous thing? Is it awesome in its power? Is it small and tiny and easy to overcome in the mission of the church? The text is verse 19 of 1 John 5, one half of the verse. I know there are many things in this verse, these verses, we would like to talk about. We've talked about them in the past. We will tackle them in the future. But I want to take just one phrase and unfold it from the New Testament. Verse 19 says, we know that we are of God. We there being those who are believers in Jesus Christ and thus children of God. We know that we are of God, born of God, children of God. And the whole world is in the power of the evil one. That's the phrase I want to lock in on. The whole world is in the power of the evil one. That is a stunning, stunning sentence. It's just incredible. The whole world lies in the evil one, it says, literally. Now, do you reckon with that as a possibility? Do, do you believe the Bible? Is this your worldview? Well, that's what we're up against. Not to be aware of it, not to be stunned by it, is to be very vulnerable to it. To walk out of here saying ho-hum is very likely to walk in lockstep with the prince of the power of the air and the ruler of this world and not even know it. So I hope that you are stunned by the magnitude of the power ascribed to Satan. In that verse, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What does it mean? That's what we want to tackle this morning. What does this mean? Well, if the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, then you could say he's the ruler of the world. You could say the world is an evil place to be and the time of this age is an evil time. And you'd be right. And I want to show you that. By looking at a few texts. Now, I'm going to look at so many texts, you won't have time to look them all up. So just listen carefully and, and uh, you can jot them down or you can get the sermon from the file cabinet next Sunday and see them. Galatians 1.4. We're going to talk first about the world or the age. Then we're going to talk about Satan. Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. 
The age in which we live is called an evil age. Why? Because it's an age which lies under the power of the evil one. If the evil one covers it like a blanket and holds the age in his power, it's an evil age. Another one is Ephesians uh, 5.16. Redeem the time for the days are evil. The days are evil. Evil is shot through the days of this age because the ruler of this world uh, covers the world. We lie, as it were, under the evil one. Therefore, when Christians are saved, when people are saved and become Christians, what happens to them? Uh, Isn't it a great thing that uh, we were saved from a lot more than we know about? I am so glad that salvation is bigger than I know about. Because I'm always learning more about what happened to me when I was six years old. Every Sunday we can learn more about what happened to me. You don't have to explain what happened to you from the start. You can't begin to explain what happened to you from the start. One of the things that happened to you when you put faith in Jesus Christ is that Colossians 1.13 says, You were delivered from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. There's been a kingdom transfer out of the dominion of darkness. And I take that phrase, dominion of darkness, to imply uh, the same thing as 1 John 5.19. The whole world lies under the evil one means there is a dominion of darkness. The evil one is evil and he's dark. And there's darkness upon the face of the earth today. An unusual spiritual darkness that covers the whole world to be saved is to come out of the darkness into a pocket of kingdom light. You are the light of the world. And the goal is to expand that pocket of light, pockets of light, in the darkness all over the world. So yes, it's an evil age, it's an evil world, it's an evil ruler. Now let's go to the ruler and see what the New Testament says about him. 2 Corinthians 4.4 The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Just take the phrase, God of this age. Isn't that a remarkable phrase? God of this age. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Therefore, that evil one can be called by Paul the God of this age. Whether people know it or not, whether they're bowing down in a seance and satanic worship over on the borders of uh, uh, Wisconsin, or whether they are just doing their secular work, oblivious of God in his reign, they are in lockstep with their God, who is called the God of this age, Satan, the evil one, under whose power lies the world. Ephesians 2, 2. You all once walked according to the age of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So, here's a new phrase. Prince of the power of the air. Now, I've thought about that phrase, power of the air, for years and years. Trying to figure out some nice symbolic significance to it. Can't do it. The most simple, straightforward meaning of that phrase is air. This stuff right here, air. And I just take that verse to mean 
There's a power in this air. That's why I prayed that this space would be cleansed at the beginning of this service. There's a power that just hangs in the air. And then there's a prince over this power or this authority. It just permeates the world except where Christians are clothed in power and moving with a kind of cleansing. It's just they're pushing the power back wherever they go. The whole world lies under the evil one and under it like an atmospheric, you can almost say an atmospheric blanket upon the world. There is a demonic, personal, evil power permeating the world. And I think that means that the prince um, shapes the patterns of this world order. Uh, it says specifically he works in the sons of disobedience. Notice the movement. There is power in the air, which is evil, but he works in a certain brand of people. They're called sons of disobedience, which I take to mean that to the degree that your heart is disobedient to God, to that degree are you under the control of Satan. And to the degree that your heart inclines to obedience to Scripture, to that degree has he no foothold in your life. Remember that, that passage in Ephesians, uh, don't let the sun go down on your wrath, give no place to the devil. That, the, the paradigm there is real clear. If you disobey Scripture and hold a grudge, Satan's got a foothold. If you obey Scripture and cast that grudge out of your life, Satan hits a wall. He can't get in. To that part of your life. Sons of disobedience run the world. That's how Satan runs the world. He doesn't merely run the world through kind of accidental bumping up against buses and things. He runs the world through sons of disobedience. So that if a newspaper, for example, has a lot of sons of disobedience who, who run it, it'll be a satanic newspaper. It'll have wickedness shot all through its editorials. If there's an entertainment industry that has a lot of sons of disobedience in it, that entertainment industry will be satanic. It'll have Satan's influences and power just shot all through it in its programming and in its movies and in its uh, plays and so on. You just go right down the line in our culture. The, the patterns of our culture in its commerce, its industry, its entertainment, its arts, its recreations... All of them are, have a god over them, a prince. And there is an atmospheric evil that, shuts, that shoots through, and then that goes right into the sons of disobedience, and they bring out all kinds of philosophical ideas, all kinds of notions about social life, which are simply tinged or shot through with satanic evil. Now, John, in his gospel records Jesus as giving a new title to Satan that I haven't mentioned yet. Three times in the Gospel of John, John 12, 31, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. Notice the phrase, ruler of this world. Here it is again, John 14, 30. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming... He has no power over me, but 
I do as the Father has commanded me. In other words, Satan didn't kill me without my letting him. That's what that means. Satan didn't get the upper hand in Gethsemane or at the cross. I submitted to God's design that Satan kill me. He was triumphant in his submission to the destruction of Satan. 1611 in John. The ruler of this world is judged. So, the whole world lies under the evil one, and therefore Jesus calls him the ruler of the world. And we just need to step back here and catch our breath. I mean, if your breath isn't at least partly taken away by these ascriptions, the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of the world, the one under whose power the whole world lies. I just wonder how many in this room right now believe this. I mean, if you believe this, do you realize how utterly out of step you are with the world? How you have a worldview, if you believe what the Bible says here in these simple sentences, you have a worldview that is so radically different from the American worldview. How many people around you at work and at school and in your living quarters and neighborhoods believe that Satan is the God of this world and that the whole world lies under his power? How many people believe that? Hardly anybody believes that. If you believe that, you're crazy. You come from another planet. You're totally outdated. You have a worldview that is pre-scientific. It is just absurd to believe this. So says modern, post-enlightenment, secular, materialistic America. I want you to realize this because it's so easy to just be in step with the world read the Bible and pass over these sentences as though they have some kind of other meaning than the awesome meaning that is lying on the face of it. There is a real supernatural power of stupendous proportions who exerts force in this world beyond anybody's imagination. Frank Peretti is really doing the world a great service no matter how many flaws there are in his novels. He's doing the world a great service by simply saying, if we could see the spirit realm, we'd be stunned. If you could see what rules the tribune, if you could see what rules the radio stations, if you could see what rules business and commerce, if you could see the demonic forces... With visual eyes, oh, how different things would be. So I just hope that you don't walk out of here saying, that's no big deal. You know, I mean, Satan's red, got a tail, two horns, cartoon, no problem. We have to beware of making an oversimplified conclusion here from some of the texts we've read. Namely... The conclusion that since Christ judged the ruler of this world and since he has cast him out, therefore he is of no consequence anymore in this age. You see, it does say, and these are glorious truths, now shall the ruler of this world be cast out as he approaches the cross. 
John 16, 11, the ruler of this world is judged. Hebrews 2, 14, Christ took on human flesh, flesh in order that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death. Destroy him. Colossians 2.15, God disarmed the principalities and powers, made a public example of them, triumphing over them in the cross. Right on, no problem, Satan's gone, it's over, right? Five chapters later, Jesus prays in John 17.15, I do not pray that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but Father, that thou shouldst keep them. From the evil one. He's still active. We'll talk about the decisive blow that was struck at Calvary. The decisive blow in the war of the kingdoms was struck. The atom bomb has fallen. But because the decisive battle is won, the war is not over. Mark it. Don't jump to a wrong conclusion. And we want to talk for many weeks about the victory and about how to live in it and how to advance it. But we must not minimize the enemy. A year ago, I preached a message. I think it was a year ago to this very Sunday in prayer week on uh, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And I listed ten strategies of the devil to trip up believers and ruin your life. You can get that out of the file cabinet. I'm not going to talk about those ten. This morning what I want to do is turn and focus in the remaining minutes on the strategies of the devil to obstruct the centerpiece of compassion in the church, namely evangelism and world missions. I do believe that evangelism and world missions is the centerpiece of compassion in the church. Healing bodies, clothing nakedness, providing housing, providing food are not loving acts if they are not performed with a view to leading people to Christ. And eternal life. Because giving people painkillers for the fever that they have is not a loving act when you have the antibiotics in your back pocket that could take away the infection and you don't pull it out of your pocket. Nobody would call that love if you've got the antibiotic in your pocket and you keep giving the painkillers and don't reach for it. Nobody would call that love. Therefore, I don't call social action love until that social action is a means of leading people into eternity with God instead of to hell. And every reasonable person who owns up to the reality of hell and heaven would have to agree with that. It is not love to kill pain and let people die forever. Let's have both. Let us not choose between these. Let us feed the hungry. Let us care for the sick. Let us heal. Let us find housing. Let us help with jobs. Let us overcome all manner of addictions. Let us work with people and let it always be a testimony to the kind of Christ who saves. That's the whole point. And that's why I say 
evangelism and missions is the centerpiece of compassion in the mission of the church. And I want to know, therefore, what Satan is doing to obstruct this in this church and in the church worldwide. So let's go at it. I have six, and I'm going to move through them real fast because I see the time is already gone. You see how frustrating this is. Number one, Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So even before you get to somebody with the gospel, even before you can care for them at all, Satan's already doing a deadening, darkening, smudging work on their mind so that when the word comes, they can't even see it. Now, that's a supernatural work done from Satan by the prince of the power of the air, somehow cloaking the minds of unbelievers so that we got to, first of all, get through that before we can even deal with their sinful heart, which is in rebellion against God. Second, Satan snatches the word away from people who hear. Matthew 13, 4, a sower went out to sow. As he sowed, some seeds fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Here's the interpretation. Verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in the heart. When evangelism does begin and the Holy Spirit perhaps lifts the darkness and a person is willing to begin to give heed and the word lands in the heart, Satan redoubles his efforts and like like vultures cruising around up here over carcasses starting to come alive. He's trying to get that seed out of the heart. Now, practically, what do you think that is? What do you think that is? How does he do that after a church service? Stalled car in the parking lot? Crying babies, dirty diapers, sick sick stomach, television, radio in the car, sexy billboard on the way home. Any number of ways, anything, anything but letting the people of God in silence meditate on the word. Satan loves noise. Satan loves distraction. He hates solitude and meditation. That's the second He snatches the word away. Third, Satan does deceptive signs and wonders. He does deceptive signs and wonders. Matthew 24, 24. False Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now, where do they come from? Where do these signs and wonders come from? 2 Thessalonians 2, 9. The coming of the lawless one by the activity of Satan will be with power and with signs and wonders of falsehood, with wicked deception for those who are to perish. Satan is the great imitator. Remember Aaron? Remember Aaron's rod? Kids? Got any kids here? They're on the Sunday school, maybe. What happened? Aaron threw down his rod in Egypt and it became a what? Snake. God told him to do that as a sign of his power. And then the Egyptian magicians, it says in Exodus uh, 7, 11. Isn't that a remarkable number? 7, 11. 
In Exodus 7:11, it says the magicians did the same by their own secret arts. Imitation signs and wonders. We must be careful. As the church is empowered for new kinds of spiritual warfare at the close of the age, Satan will copy us. No matter what happens, he will copy and he will deceive. Revelation 12, 9, Satan is the deceiver of the whole world. Number four, Satan uses people to hinder others from believing. Uses people to hinder others from believing. Illustration. It's Acts 13. Paul and Barnabas and John are crossing Cyprus on the first missionary journey. They get to the city called Paphos. There is a noble man there. God evidently had been at work bringing this man to openness. His name was Sergius Paulus. He was the proconsul. And he was intelligent, Paul said. When the preaching began, he opened to it. He leaned toward it. He began to be a believer. And then there came... This fellow named Elimus, a magician, it was called, a false Jewish prophet, it says in the book of Acts. And it says he resisted Paul and Barnabas and tried to dissuade the proconsul from the faith. Now, where did that guy come from? What's going on here? Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, perceives the spiritual dynamics of the moment. And listen to what he says. You son of the devil, that's not swearing. That is a theological statement about where this man came from. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you shall be blind and unable to see for a season. Notice the power encounter. Boom. A magician trying to dissuade the proconsul from the faith. Paul, full of the Holy Spirit, perceiving the spiritual dynamics, a son of the devil, and power. Boom! He's blind for a season. Now, let me draw your attention to a connection here. Son of the devil. Ever heard that phrase before in the Bible? Ever heard it before this morning? Randall read it. In the parable of the wheat and the tares, who are the tares? The tares are the sons of the evil one. Who sows the seed of the tares? The enemy is the devil and has sown them. What is the sowing of the seed who are the evil ones? It is the positioning of an Elimus by a proconsul about to believe. Satan strategically sows his children in the world to make havoc out of potential believers. So you can mark it. I've seen it happen in my evangelistic efforts to move in. You begin to talk to someone about the faith and something happens in the circumstances around you. Somebody, these kids out here at the first part of the service. I was praying, Lord, what are those kids doing out there? What's going on out there? And then it's the middle of winter. That happens in the summertime. What are they doing out there? It's cold. I, I don't know yet what those kids were doing out there. I'm going to ask somebody, what are those kids doing out there? David's praying. The Bible's being read. And I'm, I'm getting all kinds of distractions coming through here. 
I said to the Lord, those kids don't mean a thing. They're poor little kids. They don't mean anything. But something's happened out there. That sort of thing happens all the time when you're engaged in evangelism. Distractions. Satan moving, even through innocent people, to distract, and especially through his own children. Number five, Satan hinders mission efforts in general. 1 Thessalonians 2.17, Paul says to them in his letter, Oh, how I wanted to come to you again and again, but Satan hindered us. Who is it that locks up visas? Who is it that makes missionaries deathly sick the night before their takeoff? Who is it that makes a missionary's mom get cancer? Who is it? that wrecks the travel plans? Who is it that causes helicopters to crash? Who Satan is a great messer-upper of missionary schedules and missionary plans. He resisted and hindered us, Paul said. And number six, and I'm done, Satan throws Christians in prison and persecutes them. Revelation 2.10, Jesus says to the church at Smyrna, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. For ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Satan kills Christians. There is no guarantee that because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, that Satan won't kill you. There's no guarantee. Satan killed Tim White. First Peter 5.8 says, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering is required of your brotherhood, Throughout the whole world. All right. Now, all of that, just six of many illustrations to show that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. He blinds, he snatches, he deceives, he uses people, he hinders missionary planning, he persecutes and throws into prison and kills. He is a great and powerful and frightening enemy. And there is a conflict between the kingdoms, and we must learn the power of Christ and how to appropriate it. Now, here's what I have not talked about and the agenda for Wednesday. What about Satan's role in making people sick? What about demon possession? What about harassment of believers? What about the sovereignty of God? How can Satan be called the ruler of this world if the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof? If God is in heaven and does as he pleases, how can I say Satan killed Tim White? Where was God? That was the title of Tom's funeral message. Does God ever use Satan to sanctify his children? I want to close by having you recite with me. That's what we're going to talk about Wednesday night. I want to close by having you recite with me 1 John 4, 4. If I was a Halo Express, I'd sing it with you. But um, we'll just say it together. 
Little children, you are of God. You don't need to look it up. I'll just, it's so short, you're going to say it with me. Little children, you are of God and have overcome then. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now, the way I want us to say it is this. He who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. Now, now mark it. Anybody in this room right now can say that if you believe in Jesus. You can receive him right now. You came in this room without a great one, Jesus, in your life. You can right now say, I repent of my sins, Lord Jesus, and I receive you into my heart. And mark this promise. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So I invite anybody and everybody who believes in Jesus to declare the victory. He who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. Let's say it. He who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. One more time. He who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. Father, we praise you. We exalt Jesus Christ as the triumphant superior power in this world. We want to discover how to live in his power, how to be pockets of expanding light in a dark age. Help us, O God, I pray. And all the people said, Amen.